Welcome to the Crazy Love Podcast. When you read and study scripture, what is your ultimate goal? Is it to find yourself in the story and focus on your needs, or is it about discovering God's story? In this week's episode, Francis Chan reminds us that scripture isn't about us. It's always been about God from the very beginning. When we take a step back and maintain this perspective, it changes how we read and comprehend His Word and ultimately how we give Him glory. We pray that this episode excites your faith and brings you to a new depth of worship for Jesus Christ. It's always good to be back with you. I I don't know how your week was this week, but without exaggerating, this was the best week of the year for me. And I, and I know what you, you're in your mind, you're thinking, okay, what happened this week that made him so happy? Was his third grandchild born? No, not yet. It's, it's gonna surprise you the reason why I feel like this was my happiest week, maybe in years. It's because I was reading the Bible and I learned so much about God. He opened my eyes to things I've never understood. And when I understood it, it took me to another level of joy. And I I just kept thinking, I want that for all of you. I, I want you to experience this happiness, to taste it. But it's through understanding his word. And and the reason why I don't know if I didn't understand the Bible before because I'm not a very good reader. Just so you know, ever since I was a little kid, I've never been good at reading things and understanding them. That's why it's very strange that God would make me a teacher and a writer. It really does not make any sense. I mean, sometimes, oftentimes, even when I watch a movie, I don't understand what's happening. No, like really simple movies, I can't follow the storyline. You, you can ask my children. Sometimes I'll stop the movie and ask them to explain to me what's happening. So it makes sense that I would read the Bible over and over and over and miss some of the main points. And God was revealing things to me. But it might not be just because I don't comprehend well. Part of the problem, the reason why I didn't understand the Bible well, is I'm so self-centered. I keep thinking about myself, and that, that ruins my reading of Scripture. So, so right now, if I took a picture of you, if I took a picture of the whole congregation right now, and then I texted it to all of you, once you saw the picture, what would you do? Most of you would look for yourself and you would zoom in to see your face, right? Because you want to see how's your hair. You want to know if you looked fat today. You you just, you're concerned about you. That's what we do. We zoom in on ourselves first. But what I've discovered is we do the same thing with the Bible. So many people open the Bible to see how it affects them. Where am I in the story? Where's my salvation? I want to read a passage that tells me about my health. I want to know about my future. How will this book help my depression? And we zoom in on ourselves. And most preachers know that that's the way most of us think. 
So they preach the things that you would like. So many of you came tonight hoping that you would receive something for you. And you want to find a verse or a passage that affects you and your life right now. I've been studying this book for 40 years. And one thing I know for sure, this book is not a book about you. It's about someone else. <laughs> and I realize, wow, a lot of times I read this book looking for me rather than really wanting to understand God and his story. And when we do that, a lot of our prayers become about us. And God has shown me how lately even my prayers have become so selfish. I'm saying a lot of help me, help me, help me, rather than holy, holy, holy. Think about your prayers lately. How much of it is centered around you and how much of it is praising him? So this week I've been uh, repenting of my, my self-centered focus. And the less I think about me and the more I've been thinking about him, it's brought so much happiness in my life. And, and it seems like counterintuitive or contradictory, but it really is about focusing on the story of God rather than your own story that actually brings you happiness. So what I want to do tonight is take the next 30 minutes and teach the entire Bible. Rather than looking at one verse that might apply to your life, I want you to see something much bigger, which is the whole storyline of the Bible. And I think you'll find the more you focus on his story and his plan, the more fulfillment you'll find in your own life. Now, most of you know the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this story starts with God, about a God who has always existed for billions, trillions, who knows how long he has existed, forever. Then at one point, he decides to make the earth. He creates light. He creates the, the trees, the plants. And then on the sixth day, he decides to make this thing called a human. Okay, on the sixth day of creation, he finally decides to make this thing called a human being. Why did God decide to make this thing called a human being? What if he, I mean, it seems like he spent a lot of time existing without humans. And what if he never thought to make a thing called a human being? None of us would be here. But somehow thousands of years ago, in the mind of this being, he decided to make these creatures called humans. Okay, so you're not in the story yet. It's not about you. It's about this being in heaven who spoke and made this world. Now, why did he make people? We're not sure. Uh, but it explains what he did in Genesis 1 in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now again, this passage does not say why he made man. It just said that he made man. And he said, let us make man in our image. This is different from the rest of creation. What's also different is that he blesses the people. What's also different is that God speaks to them. When he created the animals, it doesn't say that God spoke to them. It doesn't say that he made them in his image. But when he made this new thing called humans, he blessed them and then talks to them. The story is still about God, not about you yet. Now, what happens to these humans? Most of us know the story. Um, Adam and Eve actually sin against God. Because the story starts off with Adam and Eve in this perfect garden, walking with God and talking with him. But at some point, Adam and Eve decide, we don't want to do what you've asked us to do. We want to live life for ourselves. We don't care why you made us. We just see something that looks enjoyable, so we're going to take it. And then something new happens there. God judges them. Before that, everything was about God's blessing. But now there's a blessing and a judgment. Now they're cast out of the garden. Now there's a broken fellowship with him. Now there's an angel with a flaming sword that's keeping us from that tree of life. God doesn't just destroy them and, and end it right there. God clothes them with these animal skins, showing us that he made some sort of sacrifice for their sins. They took the skins of those animals and covered Adam and Eve. Even in their rebellion, God offers a covering for it. And you'll see this over and over in the Bible. It shows us that this God in heaven is a God of mercy. And even amidst human failure, he keeps saving them. But people continue in their rebellion. By chapter eight, God says he, he looks at man and their sin was so bad that he was grieved that he ever made man. So he decides to flood the entire earth and kill everyone on the planet except for Noah and his family. So if you're reading along in the Bible and you're reading about this God, hopefully by Genesis 8 you realize, wow, this is really not about me. And, and when everyone on earth is fighting for their rights, in the news every day people are fighting for their rights. We should read in this book that by chapter eight, there's only one person who has rights. He had the right to flood the entire earth and kill every human being. And some people don't like that. Because they're like, well, all those people who drowned, didn't they have the right to exist? No, there's one being who has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. But even amidst all of that destruction, God still wants to save mankind. So he saves Noah and his family through an ark. They repopulate the earth and the people start rebelling against this God again. And by chapter 11, they decide to build a tower, 
against the will of God, they said, you know what, we are humans, we, are, we have the right to do this, and they begin to erect this tower that they believe could reach the heavens. So you see, God judged the people again, and he confuses their language there at the Tower of Babel. Now the people are separated by different languages. But even amidst that, God decides to save mankind again. And this time he says, I'm gonna pick one family again, and he chooses a man named Abram. So in, in Genesis chapter 12, don't worry, I spent a lot of time in Genesis, but the rest will go really fast. In Genesis 12 verses one through three, it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a very important promise that God says to one man, he says, I'm gonna turn you into a great nation. In other places, he says, I'm gonna make your descendants like the stars of the sky. He says, and I'm gonna use your nation to bless all of the nations of the world. So this is God rescuing people again. This time it's gonna be through a nation. Hey, remember, this was a promise 4,000 years ago, still long before you. So God makes this promise and he makes it to Abraham. Then he says the same thing to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then he says the same thing to Isaac's son, Jacob. But when the book of Genesis ends, you have all of these descendants of Abraham and their slaves in Egypt. So God made a promise to Abraham, but now you see these people because of their sin, they're enslaved in Egypt. They're enslaved for 400 years. I don't know if you ever thought about that, that God made this promise and yet here these people are in slavery for 400 years. But then they begin to cry. And God says, okay, I'm gonna save you again. Because I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he calls a man named Moses. And he starts speaking to him. And he uses him to pull his people out of Egypt. And in that story, you see the blessing of God and the judgment of God. He judges Egypt by killing their firstborn of every house. Yet he rescues his people through Moses and provides for them water and bread and meat in the desert. And then eventually Moses' successor is Joshua. And Joshua takes them into the promised land and they begin to conquer the land. And again, in Joshua, Judges, in Samuel, the same thing keeps happening when you read those books. The, the people sin, they rebel against God, and then God takes pity on them and saves them again. He does it over and over and over. And he explains why he does it. Each time he says, so that they may know that I am the Lord. He says that almost 50 times in those books. He goes, you know why I rescue them? So that they will know that I am the Lord. They need to know who God is. So they get in the promised land and then the people say, we want to have a real king on this earth, just like the other nations. 
So even though God was providing for them, these people said, well, we want to be like all the other nations. We're, we're not just happy with the creator up there as our king. We want someone on earth that we can touch and he'll rule over us. So God gives them their wish. And King Saul becomes their king. Then King David becomes their king. And then his son Solomon becomes king. And that's when they built the temple on the earth for God because God commanded them to. This is also when God made a covenant with David. So remember, he promised Abraham, he promised Moses, and now he's promising David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, God doesn't add anything to that. He doesn't say if. In this case, he just says, I'm going to establish his throne forever. Just like he told Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. He doesn't say if you obey me perfectly. He made a promise that he was going to create a nation that would bless the entire earth. God now picks David again. This is before you were born. He, he picked a guy, David, and said, I'm going to set someone from his lineage on the throne forever. But those of you who know the Bible know what happened. After Solomon, the, the, the kingdom actually split. Now there were two different kings. And there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And again, all of these kings, through, through all that time, there was so much wickedness. And God had to save them over and over and over. But then finally, both kingdoms collapse. But during that time, the prophets made a promise. God spoke a promise to the prophets. And he says to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, most of you know this verse because we read this at Christmas time. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So God is promising this, this, this deliverer is going to come, but it's saying this child will be born who is called Everlasting Father. But then God makes another promise to Isaiah. And in Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So it's interesting. God says, in a time when the kingdom was divided, in a time where neither kingdom was going very well, Isaiah, he, he says to Isaiah, I will bring them back. I will make them a light to the nations so that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Remember this promise. I know this is a lot of information, but I'm, I'm going somewhere with it. So God says, I will bring my people back. And most of you know, during the Medo-Persian era, they, they actually allow them to rebuild the temple. It's not a very great temple. In fact, when they built it, the older people were weeping because they're like, this doesn't look as good as the last one. 
But he does restore the temple. They begin worshiping again. And then something happens in Luke chapter one, as one of the priests goes into the temple, because it was his turn to make the offering. A man named Zechariah, an angel appears to him. He's basically saying, okay, now's the time. God is going to send the promised one, but first he's sending a forerunner. And he says, it's gonna be your son. So he's fulfilling all these promises. It's actually a promise from Malachi. So again, God's just fulfilling his promise again. And then Jesus is born. And you guys know John 1:14. the word became flesh, dwelt for a while among us. So Jesus comes and he starts making disciples. And, and at one point, the disciples asked Jesus, okay, are you going to restore the whole kingdom to Israel now? You promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations. You promised David that there'd be someone on the throne forever. And Isaiah said that the government would be on his shoulders. So there is a future for Israel. And they're asking, is this the time, Jesus? And Jesus says, no one knows. He goes, the son doesn't even know. Only the father knows. But he sends his disciples out. And he goes, I want you to preach the good news, but only to the lost sheep of Israel. Because remember, this is gonna be, it's gonna happen through Israel. But Israel rejects Jesus. And, and the disciples are going, okay, but are you gonna restore the kingdom? And Jesus looks at the temple. He goes, actually, this temple's gonna fall. The, all these stones you see, they're all gonna be destroyed. There's gonna be a hardening of Israel until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So then Jesus, after that, he dies on the cross for the sins of all mankind. God, who sees the world rebelling against him. He goes, let me demonstrate my love again. I so love those humans that I made thousands of years ago. And here's my ultimate salvation of my son take the form of a man, a little human, and I'll have him crucified for the sins of all mankind. To show people of all mankind that me, I am a loving God. And I'm rich in mercy. But then after Jesus dies, he rises from the dead. Okay, stick with me just a few more minutes. Jesus rises from the dead. And do you remember what the disciples ask him? In Acts 1 verse 6. It's a very logical question because now he died and he rose from the dead. So they ask him, okay, now this has to be the time. They ask him, are you at this time? Now that you've risen from the, you died for our sins, you rose from the grave. So will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now this time Jesus answers differently. He doesn't say no one knows, not even the son knows. He says to him instead, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Lord has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but not just to the lost sheep of Israel. Now you're going to be my witness in Jerusalem, and then Judea, then all of Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. Because remember, that was his promise to Abraham. Through your people, this blessing was going to come that would reach all the nations of the world. This was his promise to David. This was his promise to Isaiah. 
This is what Jesus told his disciples, that there would be a destruction of the temple and then a time for the Gentiles. And when you read Romans, you see that there's a, a partial hardening of Israel until the full time of the Gentiles. So then for 1900 years, he's been getting the gospel to the ends of the earth through a small group of Jews from Jerusalem. Just like he told Peter, he goes, I was gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So here we are 1900, no, 2,000 years later. So is God done with Israel? Did he replace Israel with the church? No, he made a promise to Israel. That's why when you get to the very end of Revelation, look what God does at the end. Too many people miss this because the gospel to us was believe in Jesus and when you die, you won't go to hell, you're gonna go to heaven. But that is not what this book is about. It's not about you and your personal salvation. It's about the story of this eternal God and what he's been doing for thousands of years and then what he's going to do at the very end. And, and look at this, Revelation 21 verses one through four. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in verse three, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So what does the Bible teach? Does it say that so then God destroys the earth and everyone goes to heaven? No, he says there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. There's gonna be a new Jerusalem, the bride, and it comes down to the earth. And now there's no longer this distance between God and man, but God will actually dwell amongst his people again. But that's not all. If you jump to chapter 22, verses one through three, it says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of the God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. See, God doesn't leave out any details in this book. There's a new heaven, new earth. There's a new Jerusalem. And he comes down on the new earth as a bride. And then there's a new garden. The tree of life is back. And just like God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, he's going to walk with human beings again. And we'll have access to the tree of life again. All because of what the lamb did. It's an amazing story. But I want you to think about something. I said a lot to make a point. For 2,000 years, God was just using Israel. There was no church until AD 33. But then 37 years after that, Jerusalem is destroyed. Just like Jesus said, the temple's gonna be destroyed. 
So then for the next 2,000 years, there's no Israel, just the church. But between AD 33 and AD 70, you had the church and Israel on the earth at the same time. Because then there's no Israel for the next 1,900 years. And then in 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. Nothing even close to this has ever happened in all of human history. For a nation to disappear for 1,900 years? So we were born into a time where the, the church and Israel are in existence again. A hundred years ago, no one was thinking Israel would ever come back. I mean, look at this story of 4,000 years. 2,000 years, just Israel. 2,000 years, just the church. And then we were born into a time when the church and Israel are both on the earth again. God said there would be this period of the Gentiles and then it would be over. And then God was gonna restore Israel and he was gonna save Israel. And we were gonna be grafted into this tree that was about Israel. Jesus promised that the gospel was gonna be spread to all the nations of the world and then the end will come. All the missionaries are saying now, we are gonna see that in the next few years where every kingdom, every nation will hear the gospel. This is the first time in human history this is the first time in human history that all people groups will have the scriptures in their own language. And we are born into this period of history. So you have this story that's been going on for 4,000 years, and then you are born in this specific season. When I finally understood that, I just got so excited. I realized, wow, Lord, why? You waited for me to be born. I was born in 1967. God could have ended everything in 1950, but he said somehow there would be this fullness of the Gentiles that would come in. And so I look at that God who spoke the world into existence, and he made these things called humans, and he does all of this through human history, and he decides to add me into that group of Gentiles so that when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and the garden is restored, I'm gonna walk there with him. And I just go, this is amazing. This is why I was saying I was so happy this week. It's not because my health was perfect. It's not because my marriage and family were perfect. No, I'm looking at the big picture and I go, wow, I get to be a part of that. And it just led me into a great week of worship. And then my prayers have no longer been, help me, help me, help me. And it's just holy, holy, holy. This story that you have been, been in for thousands of years. And it's like the last minute I get to come in and be a part of it. This is what we celebrate here. Don't come here just thinking, help me, help me, help me. We worship a God. We come here and say, wow, you are so holy. Your story is so amazing. And I promise you, the more you do that, the happier you will be. And the more you realize how blessed we are to be his children. We were made to speak to him. So I'm going to speak to him right now. 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of David, the God of Moses, the God of Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the Word who became flesh, the God who built his church for 2,000 years, the God who brought Israel back into her land again, the God who is going to restore his kingdom to Israel. We have come here to praise you tonight. Thank you for creating everyone in this room. And we have come in this room to worship you, God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let's praise him. Thank you for listening to the Crazy Love Podcast. Join us next time for a new episode. But until then, for more resources from Crazy Love Ministries or to support the work of Crazy Love, please visit our website at crazylove.org.